This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lumigo. On this episode, Rebecca and I chat with Ali Spittle about amplifying serverless developers. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 111. I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And I'm Jeremy Daly. And you're listening to Serverless Chats. Hey, Jeremy, how have you been? I have been well, Rebecca, and yourself? Been doing good. Guess what I'm doing this weekend? You might not be able to guess from the pattern that has emerged. I'm guessing you're going to a wedding. Yes, I'm going to a wedding and I'm doing the flowers. So oh, nice. So the trend Beautiful. continues. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, we are now in full soccer mode in the Daily House. So I have my youngest daughter who is on the uh, the middle school team and then also recreational soccer. My older daughter is playing in a soccer league as well. So um, so basically it is work, soccer, bed, work, soccer, bed. Like that's basically, that's my whole life now. <laughs> and a few podcasts in between. And a few podcasts, yeah. Games on Saturdays and Sundays, uh, but during the week, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. So, anyways, we have um, we have an amazing podcast guest today. Speaking of podcasts, um, would you would you like to introduce our guest? I absolutely would. Today, our guest is senior developer advocate for Amplify at Amazon Web Services or AWS. She's the co-host of the Ladybug Podcast and founder of We Learn Code, Ali Spittle. Hey, Allie. Thank you for hey. joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This will be a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for being here, Allie. And um, as I may have already given away, you're a senior developer for, or advocate, you're a senior developer advocate for AWS Amplify. And my hunch would be that you are specifically drawn to wanting to teach around Amplify. I often hear developers praise it for its relative ease of use when it comes to getting a full stack application up and running. I might even say it might be called the friendly, heavy air quotes, AWS service, depending on who you are. So can you talk a bit about Amplify and what made you want to be a DA for the service? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So I think there's two parts of that. First is like developer advocacy, and then the second part is uh like why Amplify specifically. So developer advocacy is relatively new for me. Before this, I was a teacher at a boot camp. I was the faculty lead for General Assembly's software engineering program, but I was also a lead instructor before that. And I just loved seeing people on their coding journey and seeing it click for them. Going from hello world to building a full stack app in a certain amount of time was like really cool. And to hear their career progression, like I have a student, a former student who's on my team at AWS now, and it's it's so cool to see that growth. Um, and I studied education in college as my minor um, and got to like shadow in a middle school and all that. And so got to teach like all different ages. And so going from there, career progression wise, um, after teaching, developer advocacy seemed like a relatively natural fit where I'd still be writing code, I'd still be teaching code, and then I'd also be advocating for the product internally too and making sure that different product features that will make it easier for customers to use. I think that's really exciting as well. Um, and I really get to focus on those early career developers in my job too, which I absolutely love because they're in a really unique point in their careers. and we should really tailor our stuff to them as well, not just focusing on these people who are 15 years into cloud computing. We should also be friendly to those who are newer to writing code as well. So I love that part of it. And then Amplify specifically, I have been doing more and more front end in the last few years. I started off as like a very traditional heavy back end engineer and then <laughs> moved more into the, the front end stuff. And so Amplify is more tailored to those front end developers. And so being able to work with them is really exciting. But also I think of AWS as this developer playground where there's just no end to the learning. And so I get to learn so much every single day. And that to me makes my job really worthwhile that I get to keep learning and growing myself because sometimes it feels like you 
stagnate at some point with with parts of development you're building the same crud app over and over again and so uh, that's the really cool thing about uh, aws is i don't think i'll ever learn all of it i don't think that's even possible right and that's oh and that's gosh, one of those so things true. that's one of those things about aws which is just there is so much more to learn and and the idea of becoming stagnant in your career too like that was the thing i mean i i owned a web development company for 12 years and i got to a point where i had built so many online forms that i just yeah. i'm like i can't do this anymore <laughs> exactly. i have to do something different <laughs> and then i just went down the startup road and of course that's been a whole you know crazy experience uh, for the last i don't know 15 years now whatever that's been but like it's been um uh, i totally get it cuz that is that progression of keep learning and learning and learning uh, is is such an important thing yeah, I think the form comment is exactly it. Like, I could not build another form for a crud app. It's just, it's just too much. <laughs> well, I think we're really glad that you found Amplify and that those who are trying to use Amplify found you, which is really special. Um, as someone, I'm curious, as, as someone working with newcomers to the service and you really like to focus on that newcomer space or perhaps not even a newcomer, but someone who's new to the service, right? Which is totally different for them than perhaps another way of working that they were used to. Have you seen any patterns or themes emerge in terms of where people need the most guidance where you keep having to go back to and kind of steer the ship? Ooh, that's a great question. I think that Something that my team focuses on a lot is, so I think people see half of developer advocacy, right? Of, you know, advocating externally, of creating content and doing conference talks and streams and like all that. And it's public facing, but then there's all a whole nother half of it, which is being in those product meetings. And we do something called friction logging, which is where whenever we're creating a demo, we go through and step by step document every single step we take and then also color code it like red yellow green green is this is amazing this was like a developer experience thing that really shines and was fun to do and then yellow is this could be better in some way and red is like oh my goodness stop this is this is something that we really need to work on and so that's something that we try to do from our different personas that we cover too. So I focus really heavily on those beginner developers. So I try to put myself in their shoes as much as possible. And I'm not a beginner developer. I've been in this industry for almost a decade now. Uh, I try to keep that a little quiet, but <laughs> ben and me have been doing this for quite some time now. And so I can try to be empathetic to that customer as much as possible and think about, okay, they're, they're going to know how to create a for loop, but maybe they're not going to know what these different services are named and what those different things do. Like, what is Amazon S3? It allows you to store images or store static files. And so thinking about those use cases rather than the jargon, I think is really important. This is something though that when I'm teaching, I try to also give them that background because a lot of people do wanna know that. And they do want to be able to use the jargon down the road because a lot of times they're going to be asked that in interviews and if you're not all speaking the same language that becomes pretty tricky um and so I, I think trying to make it as simple as possible and start with step by step and breaking down all the different pieces and breaking down the different jargon but still building them up so that they're able to build something real that's that's something that i am really passionate about yeah, so this idea of, you know, sort of the getting started experience or working with with people early. I mean, that's one of the great things that I always loved about Amplify was you go through it kind of asks you a series of questions and you can bootstrap an application pretty quickly. And whether it's just a web front end or you're using, you know, Flutter or one of these other things to sort of do, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, even iOS mobile and things like that um, gives you a lot of really easy ways to sort of onboard you bootstrap that thing. Now, I've read a lot of blog posts about Amplify um, over the years, and it's been great because it's cool to see people trying it and whatever. One of the common themes had been, though, um, and I'm not sure this is true anymore, but one of the common themes has sort of been hitting that feature ceiling. Like, you get to a point where you're like, all right, this just uh, isn't growing with us anymore. We need to 
eject or we need to graduate to something different. Um, and I remember speaking with uh, Nader Dabit. That was well, almost two years ago now. Um, and this was early on. And, and I think he said something around the, you know, he, he said, you know, it's opinionated, right? We're, we're trying to get people to kind of follow a certain thing. And we get to a point where, you know, you might get to, you know, you need to eject. You need to do something different. Maybe you modify the cloud formation. Maybe you, you know, take it over to SAM or something like that. Um, so I think that that is a, you know, is a, is a valid or at least was a valid sort of, um, argument, maybe not against using Amplify, but just something to be aware of that you would run up to that. But I'm kind of curious, like, there's been so many features added and things like that. Like, are we still at that point? I mean, can can Amplify grow with you all the way? Or is there still, uh, you know, is there still potentially that need where you're going to need to eject after a while? And not that that's necessarily a bad thing. Again, everybody grows and, and, and gets bigger. But I'm just curious if that is the goal to try to keep everybody in Amplify and give them all the features they need. Um, or is that just something where you get to a certain point and you might need to start thinking about other options? Yeah, for sure. So we are working really hard on that extensibility story. Like you were saying, the idea that Amplify can keep growing with you as your um, product scales and we can start you from from the beginning to that point. Um, that being said, we really do take the front to back approach where we're thinking front end developers first and then really customizing it to that story. And so sometimes if you're at a point where you're hiring a ton, a ton of backend developers, the nice thing is, is that it's infrastructure as code and you've got all that cloud formation generated for you and you can use that to move over to what you need to, to fit your team's use case. So yes, we've definitely been working really hard on that um, ability to keep with Amplify longer and longer and keep growing with it. But also, we still are focusing on those front-end developers first, or in mobile developers, too. Right. That is such a clever turn of language. I'm like a language lover. So the fact that you said front-to-back rather than we would often say end-to-end, -end, right? Like the whole experience, the experience for everyone. But what that does is that kind of washes out the actual focus when, where you want to focus first. So like front to back is so much more helpful and truly understanding where you're at saying, we're going to focus on front end first. If we have to make a trade-off, we're going to go for a front end developer because that's what we're serving. And we're going to make it to the back end rather than saying end to end and then being like, well, they're both ends. Like where, which end do we start at? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of those things is that you have to have the people in mind that you're building for. And if you're trying to build for everybody, you might not be building for anybody, to be right. honest. And that's something that I think about when I'm creating content too, is I have one specific person in mind that I'm writing a blog post to. And it ends up being different people from different backgrounds that are reading the thing. But if you have that person in mind, you know that it's going to help a person from that persona. And if you don't have that in mind, then you're using some jargon in some places, you're breaking it down in other places, you're explaining some things in an expert type way and other things in a beginner type way, and you just end up not really being writing for anybody. And so I think the same is true with development products is that you have these core customers or personas in mind that you're building for, and it'll end up helping more people than that. Like there are non-front-end developers using Amplify out there, but that's really the person that we're building with them in mind first. Wow, I, I uh, had a conversation. I was interviewing Jeff Barr for something else um, a couple months ago, and I asked him about his writing process uh, since he has such a beloved blog and you know the, the whole AWS evangelism. And he said the exact same thing. He said, I meet people at conferences and I remember them in my mind's eye and I remember what we talked about. And I say, this blog post is for you, Kelsey, you know, like, and he really yeah. does write with that person in mind, which I, I love that. And it's, um, I wonder how many of you who also write and work at AWS, if, if you're all actually secretly have a different developer in your head, I would love to see <laughs> the whole portrait of all those developers. Um, yeah. So I actually manage our developer advocacy team now. So um, that's something that I have everybody do is write out their personas. Like, who are you covering? Who am I covering? Who are these people that we want to help out? Like for me, I said, these beginner developers are really the 
core that I love working with and speaking to. But I also really like the indie maker story because I have my blog, which has turned into a company of sorts, and my podcast, which has turned into a company as well. And so I can speak to that customer pretty well as well. But then I also have people on my team who want to talk more about the Amplify and production story. Like, how are you using this? to talk to startups and how are those customers doing that? And then um, also I have a developer advocate on my team who is from Nigeria and so he really wants to speak to the customer who may not have the most ideal internet situation. And so it allows us to work together to cover these different types of people and really speak to all of them, um, but also with tailoring our own experiences and incorporating those into the stories, but still having the people in mind that we really want to reach. Yeah. All right. I took us for a little stroll because I got really excited about your use of language, Uh, (laughs) but I did want to ask you about um, the growth of Amplify, perhaps like you're doing this front to back approach, but Amplify is you're adding features and improvements to it, like creating that extensibility story. And you wrote about this recently in your Dev2 blog about like the 10 coolest releases. Um, and a few of our recent favorites are mixing and matching uh, authorization modes and data store, support for storing environment variables and secrets accessed by AWS Lambda functions, um, and launching new full stack CICD capabilities. So I'm wondering as a dev advocate, which releases have been your favorite in terms of seeing your customers and stu- students benefit the most? So my favorite one personally is the admin UI. I just think the idea of, okay, so the idea of low code, I think in general terrifies developers. It's like, where's my job gonna go? It's gonna be this awful user interface and all the code is gonna be abstracted away from me. But what I really like about our, admin UI is that it's a developer first mechanism for generating code and it's a more visual interface which I think does help some developers like they like having that visual way of creating a database I know that I do too I think that like you can't create ERDs or whatever like entity relational diagrams when you're building out a database and so if that can just be your database you can then click a button and it generates it for you i think that's pretty cool and then all the code is still generated for you like i think that's one of the cool things about amplify too is that so much of what it does is code generation and so um i i personally just think it's really fun to use. It's something that as a software engineer, I started up in the like Django era and the Rails era where we had all these admin consoles that would generate with the app. And the fact that we can do that with the admin UI, I think is really great too. We've kind of lost that with the more heavy front end framework era of development. Mm-hmm. And so bringing that back, I think is really cool because there was some really great developer experience that came from that. And I think some of that has gone missing. So that to me is something I'm really excited about and really excited to see more and more services integrated into. Um, that's me personally. Well, it, it's funny that you mentioned the admin UI console because I, I wanted to I wanted to talk about that as well. Because okay. that's one of those things that, you know, I look at as a developer who has built, I, I, I don't even want to tell you how many applications I've built <laughs> over my lifetime, um, but it's a lot. But one of the things I see, especially even in teams, you know, you focus very much so on building out that MVP and trying to get that product out the door. And admin is one of those things you just ignore almost all the time. It's like, well, we got to build an admin panel, but yeah, do we really right now? Or can we just do this? And then you end up with like a hodgepodge of scripts yeah. so that you can like delete users <laughs> or change something or whatever. And it's always like, uh, you know, call Jim or call Sue. And like, we got to do something, we got to make some change. And like nobody, you know, nobody knows how to do it. Um, so that idea of having an admin right out of the box is just to me is crazy. Like it's almost like table stakes now because you mentioned like Ruby on Rails. And I mean, even if you think back to like Symphony and some of these other frameworks that had this like debugging console and, and the whole yeah. admin experience just so you can go and add and delete a user. I mean, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm sort of curious, like in terms of what you're seeing from um, you know, productivity-wise, because to me, it's that kind of thing where, as a developer, I don't have to build that piece of it, right? So I don't have to go in and build the admin UI for the for adding and deleting users or the data piece or whatever. But have you seen people embracing this now and sort of like getting productivity gains from that? 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think it's one of those pieces that the customers just are so excited about. Right. And I am really excited about it too. I build Amplify apps like every day. I There's a limit on your AWS account that you can only have like 25 Amplify apps per region. And I always hit that. Like I hit it probably <laughs> like three times a week. Um, and so just for me, it's so nice to be able to use that and generate a backend so quickly. Um, and it's a huge productivity win too. Like we go back to forms. Those forms are already built for, for yes. you. So you can create that initial data to test out your app instead of having to build those forms yourself. So yeah, we've definitely heard great things from customers and I'm really excited to see other categories being integrated into it too. Like the idea of potentially having image uploading through it or something like oh, that, yeah. I think would be, would like be nice. so cool. Right. Well, I mean, so the other thing you mentioned too was the data and that sort of visual, you know, that sort of the visual data builder that you have. And I mean, anybody who doesn't have experience with NoSQL modeling NoSQL, I mean, even if you do have experience modeling NoSQL, um, it's not easy, right? It's a, <laughs> no. It can be a very complex process. Just watch the Rick Houlihan videos um, or read Alex Debris' book. Um, but yeah. it's very, it, 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 it is definitely a complex thing. And so the, and, and I don't think, and just full uh, you know, transparency here, I don't think that the uh, the modeler is perfect, right? Because it can't be, because it's so, I mean, there's so many different ways to go down, but it is really good. Um, and that ability for you to do that. Now, modeling is one thing, building out the GraphQL schema automatically for you and giving you the mutations and the resolvers and all that kind of stuff. That's where it just sells it for me, because again, building that stuff by hand is just, is crazy. Like it's just undifferentiated heavy lifting that you do not need. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious, I mean, obviously you're excited about it as well, but just that's another massive productivity gain, another thing customers don't need to think about, um, and just that ability to kind of, you know, leapfrog you years, you know, I mean, like it would take months and months and months and probably years of experience before you can get to a point where you can build that the way you're supposed to, and that's just baked right in. Oh, definitely, definitely. I remember reading Alex's book. It's amazing. If you're not you have not read it, DynamoDB book. It's it's really great, um, and it's it, it's a lot. And I just remember like early in my career using Postgres for everything and right. just absolutely loving it. And it has such great developer experience where you can create these uh, tables and rows and just use them as is, and that's awesome. And but then you need NoSQL if you're going to go to hyperscale, right? Just SQL doesn't do hyperscale well. And so having those gains of no SQL, but also having the developer experience that's more similar to a SQL type situation where you're not having to think too much about the uh, nitty gritty of modeling or like the wild west that can be no SQL. I think that that's, that's really great. And um, the wrapper on it to data story that allows the data to be available online and offline. That's something that I've implemented so many times as a developer. I, used to be a software engineer at Dev2, which is a, a platform for developers. And I built their blog uploading tool. So you can write like a blog on there. And that has the online offline pattern where if somebody accidentally refreshes the page or loses internet, it stores your blog post locally so you don't lose it. And so data store just like does that for right. you out of the box without you having to really implement that data pattern yourself, which is pretty nice. That is so cool. So you use one of the products that you built almost every day, like you blog on Dev2 and that's where a lot of your, I see a lot of your content hosted on there, um, which is really cool. But I wonder how that feels for you to like, oh, there's like, oh, I remember that. I never, I, I didn't change that in the code base and it's still like persisting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's so cool to have worked for them. I was like hire number seven. So super, yeah. super early stage, very different than working for AWS, which is a, a very large company. Mm -hmm. um, but it is so cool to still use the things that I built. There's also an offline page that you can draw using. So it uses like HTML canvas and you can draw pictures while you're stuck offline. And I built that too. And that one always like resurfaces on social media or like Reddit sometimes. And I'm like, oh, I built that. It's so funny. Yeah, you're going to have a bunch of people accessing that now after this podcast. They're like, wait, right. what? That's been there this <laughs> yeah. whole time? That yeah, is amazing. Yeah. What a delight, turning something that's like very frustrating into a delight. That's amazing. 
Yeah, it's um, so funny. So I'm curious if there's you, as you said, like you're you're constantly adding new stuff to Amplify. I love the green, yellow, red approach. And then so you know where to focus your time and then, you know, from front to back. So you have all these different ways of evaluation and criteria of what comes next and what you build next and what you focus on now. And I'm wondering if there's something that you continue to hear as a wish list item for Amplify and what's something that you continue to poke the product teams about, right? Where you're like, hey, y'all, I know we talked about this, but <laughs> but it's still there. There's so many. So I think a big one up until recently was the Next.js full support. So we just added server-side rendering for Next.js in the last couple months. And before that, we had so many customers asking for that or like trying to deploy it and it just wouldn't work. And so that was a huge one. But to follow up on that, like Next.js, we don't have server-side rendering support for that yet. And I've gotten a ton of customers asking for that because the Vue community is also very... Uh, very busy and very uh, excited <laughs> about things as well. So definitely want to integrate that. Um, also, just more support for different categories within the admin UI. Like I know when it came out, I was getting all sorts of requests for standard GraphQL support because right now it's data store instead of um, just our raw GraphQL API. So that's another one that I hear about a lot. Um, this is kind of a niche one, but... Uh, so we have a seed data feature within the admin UI where you can press this button and generate like 20 rows of data or something like that. And right now it just does lorem ipsum for you. And I keep pushing them to use like Faker or a library like that to make it so that it's people's names instead of just like lorem ipsum. So that's a niche <laughs> one, but would be pretty fun too. But also delightful, right? Because there, but is, also there delightful. are so many good libraries where you're like, wait a minute, that just told me a poem from Shakespeare. Like I'm just reading part Hamlet. Like this is great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then I think the other big one is the extensibility story like we have been talking about. And that's something that we've worked a lot on, but I think we can still keep working on and keep getting better there and um, really try to make it so that Amplify is something that you can scale with for a very long time. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address. And those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues while also giving you an end-to-end -end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing toolchain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in Jira straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Sign up for free at lumigo.io. Um, so, hey, you want to talk about low code for a couple of minutes? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, so um, <laughs> so you have a post that you wrote earlier this year. Uh, it was called The Case for Lower Code. Um, and actually, I, I'm working on a project at Serverless Inc., Serverless Cloud, which is basically trying to build a low-code platform. So I, I like totally appreciate totally resonated with me exactly what you were talking about. Um, <clears throat> and so you did this really cool thing where you framed, like, you know, the difference between full code and low code and no code and so forth. And, and this idea that full code is, is you know, there's this ongoing cost and ongoing commitment, you know, huge learning, you know, experience in order to, you know, to get yourself to be a developer, the cost of hiring more developers to maintain all this stuff versus I think what you would position maybe or call like more productive, you know, low code approach where the developer still has a lot of control, um, but you're abstracting away a lot of things for them. And so, um, you know, so I, I think just, and, and, and I'd love your opinion on this, but, you know, being a, a modern, in quotes, application developer now, I think is a lot harder. Even though we have all these tools and all these frameworks and all these other things, the, the scope of what you need to know, if you want to deploy a full application on AWS or Microsoft Azure or IBM Cloud or any of these things, 
it's not just writing for loops and um, you know and querying a database anymore. It is setting up the IAC. It's setting up you know infrastructure as code. It's it's understanding the services like you said like. You might have understand the abstractions, but maybe you want to learn the um, the services behind them. So there's all kinds of crazy things like that. It was, you know, you said you came from the, the sort of Ruby on Rails days. I mean, that was magical, right? It was this, yeah. you know, you, you don't even need to write the database. Like you just write the query and it sort of understood how it would save it in the database and some interesting things like that. Um, so I'm just curious here, like if, even if you take the approach of AWS CDK or SAM or Terraform or Serverless Framework or any of those there, there is so much that you still have to know, um, more than you probably had to know in the past, even though a bunch of it is being abstracted away. So I'm just curious, you know, and I would think Amplify is sort of a low code, you know, it, it wants to be low code, right? I think it goes not always low code in some places, but wants to be low code, um, and is certainly th that direction. but. I, I'm curious, like, what is, you know, from your perspective, what's the holy grail of low code? Like, what does the holy grail of a low code platform really look like? Um, you know, and, and maybe is that where Amplify is trying to go? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I would say that it probably doesn't exist yet, but I think it's something that's really exciting. And you brought up this Ruby on Rails um, discussion again. And I think that's honestly one of the best versions of low code in a way that we've had. And it's a spectrum, right? Like right. I think in a lot of ways, Ruby on Rails is not low code. You still have to write a huge amount of the code yourself, but you can do Rails generate something and then it will generate a lot of the code for you. We talked about writing forms and it would write the initial version of your HTML forms for you. So you didn't have to write that from scratch. And then we have this framework era of front-end development that we're in now, and we lost a lot of that developer productivity that we had at that era, right? You, there's not necessarily as many code generators that you can run that can write a React form for you. I think that they're starting to exist, but that's not fully there yet. Um, but Ruby on Rails was very much developer first, or it is very much developer first. I keep talking about it in past tense, like a lot of people still <laughs> use this. I was still using Ruby on Rails in the job like a couple years Ruby ago. Ruby on Rails is so, like, I'm not dead. Yeah, not dead yet. <laughs> it's still amazing. It still has great experience. I should not be using it in the past tense. So Ruby on Rails has this developer experience that you can generate a lot of the code for you. Um, that being said, I think that serverless also has a lot of advantages where you don't have to manage as much of the infrastructure yourself. And with Ruby on Rails, you still have to, it's not really fitting in this serverless paradigm, so you right. still have to manage the servers yourself. And so I think if we could com combine the developer productivity of these two different areas of having something where the infrastructure is mostly managed for you, where you don't need to worry as much about that. You can have more of like a serverless approach, but then also you have the great code generation that comes. I think that that's really amazing too. And I think the thing that a lot of low code tools are missing is that they're not developer first. They have developers as an afterthought. And so most of the code is abstracted away completely from the developer and you can't access it if you want to. Um, and I think that having a full code generation is still necessary so that if anything needs to be tweaked, the developer can do that. I don't think we're at a point where you can build something that has full business logic without a developer. Right. I think you can build something that's static, like a, a Squarespace site or something like that, and you can do like comments and things like that, but not something that has custom business logic at this point in history. So I think like, the idea of like Webflow is really, really cool, but... And I know that it does generate code for you, but it's mostly, again, for those front-end only sites. And so if right. we had something that has all the code for you and also allows you to use an interface that generates the code, I think that's excellent. And whether that's through the command line, like developers are maybe more used to or an interface so that people who are less technical could also feel more comfortable. I think that's really exciting. So th that's just my two cents is that we have reinvented the wheel so many times right. as developers. <laughs> and let's make it so that in the future, developers can just focus on the hard stuff rather than reinventing the easy stuff over and over again. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because the frame, the front end frameworks, I, I totally agree. Like I use React for a while. Uh, I do a little bit of Vue, but I'm not really a front end developer, more of a back end developer. But that's the thing is that I, 
started my career writing um, everything with vanilla JavaScript. And then it was like, oh, now Scriptaculous exists. And there was a thing called Prototype. And there were a few other ones that gave you features. Then it went to um, jQuery, right? And then you had jQuery and yeah. Tools and some of these other things. And then next thing you know, you get full re- deployment ones with React and Vue and um, uh What's the other one there? Angular and things like that. So um, I think that's super, I think that's a really good point. Like you start losing productivity as you, you lose productivity in a way as you start taking control away. I don't know if that, I mean, it's like, it seems like it's a good thing because you're like, oh, this does all this for you. But oh, now you want to work around something and do it differently. You got to jump through a bunch of hoops and kind of figure that out. So yeah, I love that. I love that idea though of still giving developers control. I just never see a no code thing where a developer is going to be clicking yeah. through a UI. Um, it's like you want to see the code, you want to be able to to touch it um, but at the same time you don't want to be spinning up SQSQs and setting up databases and managing those and and even maybe thinking about those as primitives but um, yeah no I love that I think that I think spot on that's it's that's kind of where I want to be that's where I would love to be I feel like it'd be hyper productive and and uh, and and still you know not reinventing the wheel every couple of years yeah I very much agree that we can use these tools to make developers more productive like even if you think about visual studio code for example the text editor there are so many visual tools built into that to build developer productivity and a lot of developers are like no user interfaces like bad (laughs) but like we all use them right and so (laughs) i think some sort of hybrid approach that is still great for maybe less technical users, but also can encompass those technical users. I always think my my dad works for Red Hat in business development, and he got a Linux computer when he worked there. And I remember just like him freaking out about the command line. Like, what do I do with this? Like, <laughs> like help me. <laughs> and so like, um, but then most developers are going to be more comfortable almost in a command line than in a visual interface. And so how do we merge those different worlds and make it so that both parties are happy? Well, it's funny. It's a it's a mix of both because there's plenty of uh, of the visual tools that I use in VS Code, but I still refuse to use the Git one. I still have to do Git from the command line. It's, It's the only way it's the only way I roll. Yeah, no, I so agree. I so agree. I have all my like aliases and functions built into bash to make right. uh get more productive <laughs> and then the, the visual one like honestly though working with students the pull request visualization that vs code has for merge conflicts is out of this world because right. the little like dashes and things that we had to <laughs> deal with back in the day that would confuse them like like so much and so having that visual cue is really helpful yeah, totally agree. I think, so you use the word comfort a few different times, and it does seem to me, especially as someone who still is like, has been around the developer world, understands the language, but maybe it's not, like, I'm not confident in doing it myself. Um, there's something about it being like low code being something that can give someone who's interested in coding, but not totally sure how to do it. Once they, Once you feel a little more comfortable then I think that allows you to keep moving forward. So there's something like special, I think, around introducing some amount of comfort in having that low code experience where like, now I feel like I sort of have my feet wet and I can keep going versus being like, this is all too overwhelming. Never mind. I just need to shut this down. And so (laughs) it does seem like that's a good transition or hybrid space between serving people who already feel really comfortable in code and helping other people who are like, okay, this is now I can see where I'm going versus being like, I just need to jump in. And, and there's, I think a lot of times people hit a barrier right at that moment. And that sounds, yeah. I can imagine as a teacher that feels pretty good, but you're constantly looking for that like hybrid line to be like, okay, what helps people feel comfortable enough to keep going versus like shutting their brain down, being like, never mind, I'm just going to go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. I think there's this idea of the productive struggle and at some point the struggle becomes unproductive, but you do need to do it. Like you still need to go through that Google yeah. process yourself and the debugging and that frustration. If you don't, that's, I mean, that's really what being a developer is, is being able to solve those small problems yourself. So you have to go through it. But I think that like the reason why I think teaching front end from the beginning is that you get something really visual and you get visual feedback to what you're building. And that's the harder thing with teaching like Python first or 
Java or something like that is that it's a little bit more abstract. Like you get something printing out in your <laughs> command like, line. And look, it's I like, made I made a <laughs> JSON object. Yay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like it's just not overly tangible what you're actually building. And so I think that's something that's exciting is the idea that people could be able to build with less and less code. And I hear this story from so many people that their first time writing code was like MySpace or uh, was like tweaking Neopets or something along yes. those lines. And so <laughs> I think that's that's a cool thing that maybe we're missing a little bit in this generation. So one of my favorite videos of yours is seemingly simple, and you've had a, a really an array of stunning turns of phrases uh, throughout this conversation. So thank you. Like productive struggle, great. Already wrote that down. Um, <laughs> front to back, love it. Uh, but so you talk about all these sorts of pieces of advice or turns of phrase that I think are really memorable and really simple. Um, and one of yours, your first piece of advice, which is based on your own lessons when you started to learn how to code is you don't need to know everything. Um, instead, you suggest that, that someone should focus their attention and, and generally avoid shiny object syndrome, which you call it, um, for, from the developer space. So how did you choose your technologies and, and niches? And when did you know it was where you, you wanted to focus? I think what you offer there, right, is like, it seems like simple piece of advice, but it takes a long time to learn that. And then it takes a long time to feel confident enough to share it um, and to say, hey, I didn't know and I still don't know. Um, and you don't need to know everything. And so I'm wondering how you like how you came to be and like, this is where I want to focus. This is what I'm going to do. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So my learning to code story was relatively unique. Like I didn't know what programming was until I needed a math class in college and CS 101 hit that box and fit in my schedule. So I ended up in this classroom and was like thinking that computer science was like how to format Word documents or something like that. I had no idea what I was going to learn. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with it. I thought it was so cool that you could type something in and build a game with it and see these different pieces coming to life. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then... I decided to like major, or double major in computer science after that one class, and I ended up in data structures and algorithms, the infamous uh, weed out C++ class, and I was just in way over my head. Like Most people in the class had been coding seemingly their whole lives, and I was spending all-nighters trying to create like Sudoku solvers and these super tricky things and I was like okay never mind like I this just isn't for me I just not smart enough and uh so I quit coding the only reason that I ended up back into it is that I had a internship where I was doing a lot of data analysis and I realized that I could use Python to automate most of my own job because it's like this is just super repetitive like there's got to be a better way to do this and I was like oh I know Python like I can I can figure this out um but I think that early on in my career I had this like wild imposter syndrome just like I my career story is different than a lot of people's I and was too old learning this was just hysterical because now I've taught like 50 and 60 year olds how to code and I was you know 18 19 um <laughs> so definitely was not too old uh, I can tell you that for sure but so I think that like early on I, I didn't even think that I was going to be a software engineer, even when I was a software engineer. The few, first few years, I was like, this is a very temporary thing. I guess it was because I'm a developer advocate now, but I guess it's still in the same realm. Uh, and so I think like then I was buying, there's like the site uh, Udemy, which has all these different courses on it. And you get all these emails with these different sales on courses and I would just rack them all up. It didn't matter if it was like on game, game development, on uh, like .NET, like it was really just a grab bag of different things. And I was like, I have to learn all of these. There's no way I'm going to be successful if I don't <laughs> also, if I don't know how to build an operating system and know how to do <laughs> like HTML, I'm not a real programmer. <laughs> and then being in the industry longer, it was like nobody knows all of these things. Like yeah. everybody has to pick their specialization and they have to pick the thing that they're good at and that they enjoy doing because there's just too much. Nobody's going to know every single programming language. Nobody's going to be an expert in all these different things. And 
I think there's also this tendency with new developers where when you're learning something at first, it's really fun and it's not very difficult, right? There's this beginning of learning where you're just dipping your toes in the water and you're like, oh, this is really cool. Like I can run a hello world. I got this. And then it becomes a little bit more hard and then you start really doubting yourself. And then there's this tendency to be like, okay, I'm going to quit this. And I'm going to go learn some other thing now. So right. um, C++ too, is too hard for me. I'm going to learn, you know, C sharp instead or whatever. And so that's this kind of idea of shiny object syndrome of you're seeing all these different things, especially with the social media, the way it is now. I definitely did not know about tech Twitter when I was learning to code, but it seems mm -hmm. like there are a lot of new developers on there now. And um, so you see all these different things, the new JavaScript framework of the week, at least at that point in history that's coming out. And you're like, I've got to learn all these different things. And you really just don't. And the knowledge that you're going to get from learning something more in depth is going to be so much more valuable and so much more transferable than learning hello world in 20 languages. I mean, I guess the hello world transfers from language to language, but outside of that, it's going to be pretty hard to write something productive if that's all you know how to do. Right. And, and you actually have some other advice that you give, uh, I think, in that same talk where you talk about not getting sort of stuck in this uh, in this like tutorial hamster wheel type thing where because um, it's not only about switching to the new shiny object, it's also how far certain tutorials will take you. And and I often yeah. find with tutorials, it's like, you know, beginning TypeScript. OK, great. You take that. And then, and then there might be one on advanced TypeScript. OK, so you take that. But you watch those a hundred times um, and you're never going to get the experience or the knowledge or be able to actually build something until you actually start build something, uh, building something um, yeah. and then start Googling and stack overflowing and find that random, you know, dev two post that is about some edge case that you're having and, and things like that. So um, I think that's great advice because that that's just one of those things where it is, it does seem like, well, I should know how to do this or I should know how to do this or I should know how to do that. But I'm telling you, finding an expert in any particular area. Like if you can find somebody who really knows React, even if they don't know how to build an API, but they know how to interact with all of them and they know how to you know handle all the use cases and all the failovers and everything that, that's around there, that is tremendously more valuable, at least in my opinion, than you know just being sort of a jack of all trades and a master of none. Oh, definitely, definitely. And something that I bring up is this idea of like T-shaped knowledge. So you have yes. deep knowledge in one area and then shallower knowledge in other areas so that you can at least speak to them. Like you might not be a backend developer yourself, but you know what a database is so that you right. can communicate with your backend developer and talk to them about it. Uh, I also think going back to the idea of tutorials, I saw this so often when teaching is you'd give somebody an assignment like build a tic-tac-toe solver or like build a tic-tac-toe app. And then they would Google how to build a tic-tac-toe app with JavaScript and HTML, and then they'd copy and paste that and turn that in. And that it doesn't does no teach good. you how to be a programmer. That teaches yeah. you how to do like a research assignment. And so if you can break the problem into smaller and smaller pro problems, that's really what programming is. And so Googling each one of those tiny little pieces instead of the puzzle in general is way more helpful. Yeah, totally agree. And now you mentioned that you were unaware of tech Twitter. I wish I was now unaware of tech Twitter sometimes because another, <laughs> same, uh, same. another piece of <laughs> advice that you give is don't listen to jerks. I think I probably had a different experience than a lot of other people, you know, depending on your background and things like that. Um, it can be brutal. I mean, it can be brutal when you start posting things and putting yourself out there. Um, and, uh, and, and it's real. And, and that's, and that's one of those things. So your advice is don't listen to them, but can you go a little deeper on that? Because I feel like it's, it's easy. Oh, just, you know, sticks and stones. Right. But words cut deep sometimes and it can really shake your confidence. So what's your advice to people who are getting trolled or, who are getting negative comments. Yeah, for sure. So I think at first there's this tendency to just be like, oh, they're jerks, just ignore them. And I think that's valid, but I, I think that's also much easier said than done. And so people then get mad at themselves for taking these things personally. And that's psychologically how we work, right? We're just going to focus on the criticism that people give us rather than the compliments. Even if there's a thousand compliments, if somebody says something nasty, you're most likely going to focus on that one nasty comment. That's just right. how we're wired. And so I think giving yourself the grace to just realize that and not be mad at yourself for for just seeing that. And then I think a huge thing is taking time away. So making sure that this doesn't become everything. And I think at some point, you know, it becomes really 
almost addicting, like the uh, social clout of getting these likes on things and right. views and all that. And so making sure that you have more outside of that too, like I pretty much don't use my phone on weekends, period. <laughs> I pretty much use it like nine to five on uh, weekdays and that's it. My friends outside of work are always like, why are you never on your phone? <laughs> uh, but I think having that like separation is important. I also think that um, just having coping mechanisms and people close to you that get it, because I think a lot of people who don't deal with the social media stuff like don't fully understand it. And so for me, having my podcast co-host, we've become, you know, incredibly close friends over the years, and they they get it. There are people that are also having to be public facing and so they understand these types of comments and how they can bring things up for you i I think the hard part is like oftentimes these comments prey on insecurities that you have and so you're like oh they caught me like they they figured it out they they they're the ones that realize this so it's really not them saying it's you saying it to yourself and this being a confirmation of that and so making sure to take that into perspective and say that you cannot be your critic like that. The continuous improvement is really important, but hatefulness and being too self-critical is not good. And there are things that right. you can change about yourself. And then there are things that you cannot change about yourself. And you're not just the things that you're putting out there. I don't know. That's just my two cents, but I think the first thing is just having that patience with yourself that it is hard and not being mad at yourself if you're upset over it. Yeah, and I think you're right though. Trolls are so good. They really know how to like push buttons, you know what I mean? And really yeah. get under your skin. Um, and I, I've heard this advice before and, and I, you know, whenever somebody asks me, um, I, I clearly don't have the uh, the following on Twitter that you do. Uh, you have done pretty well uh, collecting uh, quite a, a huge following. Um, but is just not to engage those people, right? I mean, that's kind of stay away from it. If they make a comment, because you're never going to win, like, you know, no one, uh, or I, I was able to change someone's mind with my, you know, my long response on Facebook said no one ever, right? Like, yeah. I mean, that's sort of how it is. <laughs> oh, for sure. The one caveat that I will give to that, though, is you're, so you're never going to change that person's mind. They're never going to, to change. But you can sometimes change the people reading it. Mm. And so sometimes if you... It can educate somebody. You're not going to educate them necessarily, but if a thousand people are also reading it, maybe it will change somebody else's mind and maybe allow them to be more empathetic in a situation like that in the future. So I try not to engage for the total trolls, like the one follower egg profile picture <laughs> folks. But if somebody says something that's, you know, really sexist or something or like racist or something like that, sometimes responding in an educational way mm. can be helpful to educate the other people reading it, not necessarily the person themselves. I love that advice. That is a really good call out. Um, I'm going to give everyone a peek behind the curtain here. You mentioned the Ladybug podcast, which I know Jeremy has a question about, but before <laughs> we get off the topic of learning, you do such an incredible job, right? Teaching students coming up, but I, um, we know on this podcast, there's a bunch of people that are also on the other side, on your side, right? They're developer advocates, they're on the product side, they're trying to be teachers. And there's something, they're like, not all tutorials or beginner guides are created equal, but what you create and the content you create really resonates with people. And so since we have a lot of listeners out there who are also in the technical community who are trying to teach, who are trying to be um, following in your footsteps, um, they're trying to share and show and mentor others. I'm wondering if you have any tips for them in terms of creating useful, accessible, helpful content uh, where you're like, all right, this can be hard. Not all tutorials are created equal. Here's here's a few different ways to think about making accessible content. Well, thank you. So my first thing is having that persona in mind that you're writing to. I, we already covered that advice, but mm -hmm. I even have, I have documents about this, like who this person is that I'm writing to, who we learn code, which was my blog, who is the ideal reader of that. And so I think putting yourself in that customer or that reader's footprint or that they're in their shoes is so important. So that's a first step. The second thing is that scientifically people learn best when they learn the same information in multiple modalities. And so you can kind of trick people into repeated content if you do it in a different enough way. And so 
usually what I try to do is I try to give the framing of why something's important, what something is, and then I show them an example of it. But then I also try to integrate things like um, videos and images and things like that so that um, people are seeing the same material but they're able to see it in a couple different ways so that it sticks a little bit better with them. The other thing that I would say is that it's often like the hardest thing is just putting something out there because you're like, nobody's going to read this. It's going to suck, like whatever. Well, the first thing is that primarily you're going to benefit from it. Trying to challenge your knowledge and write some about something is pretty challenging. And so you have to research a lot to put all these strings together even if it's something that you've been using for years you're probably still gonna have to research something in order to explain it to somebody else in some sort of way and so I think it's really really valuable for you even if nobody's gonna read it at first that's totally okay I I thought my first blog post got a bajillion views it was like 37 people and I was like oh my goodness that's amazing (laughs) like I never thought anybody was gonna read this yeah it is it is it is yeah, no, I love that the research advice is because that's the the way I am when I write blog posts is like I start writing and I'm like, I think this is right. Like, yeah, it's right. Well, is it right? And hold on. And then I got to go check it and do that research. And then I usually end up learning more myself. And then it just makes for a, a better uh, a better post altogether. All right, we're running out of time. But if you've got a couple more minutes, I'd love to talk about the Ladybug podcast. Cool. Um, so you have an amazing podcast. Um, and it is you, uh, Kelly Vaughn, Emma Bosti, and Sydney Buckner. Uh, and you have, uh, you know, topics that cover everything. So um, everything from web development to building your career to how to nail, uh, you know, an interview, a tech interview. I think I, I uh, re- uh, recently listened to one about financial planning uh, or, you know, or like, you know, things like that. So, I mean, some of these get super deep, you know, and technical. Some of them uh, are more focused like on, you know, your and the other and the other women on the podcast, their experiences and, and, and their stories, which is amazing. So I kind of have a number of questions, but I guess I'll cut this down. Um, you know, one, how do you pick those topics? Because it is just it, some of them seem broad. I know they all tie back to tech and, and the conversations are great because you mentioned you've all become good friends. You can tell it's just like a friendly conversation between a bunch of women that is just it, and, and if you're. If you think this is only for women, I love it. I love listening to the podcast. It's great. There's so much information in there. It's not like it's for women, but maybe you could explain that better than I can. But like, who is this targeted for? So if somebody has had the horrible misfortune of not listening to the Ladybug podcast yet, <laughs> um, like who who is this for? Well, thanks. Um, so we try to balance it out with highly technical episodes and less technical episodes that are more career focused. And we try to always interview people if it's something that we're not experts in, like financial planning. That one was very much a interview episode because none of us are certified financial planners by any means. And so I think that, again, it's this idea where we have this ideal person in mind for each episode, whether that's somebody who's more advanced in their tech career or somebody who's more of a beginner. I think we definitely do skew maybe on the more beginner side for our technical episodes where we're teaching something like React from scratch or TypeScript from scratch. Uh, But at the beginning of every season we pretty much just brainstorm a huge list of potential episodes and then we all vote on them and that's the nice thing about having four of us is that we can kind of say okay this would be a really good one this one might not be good and then from there it's just a balance of uh trying to appeal to the front-end developers for maybe the more back-end folks for people who are trying to be um or newer to their career and more advanced in their career as well. So we try to do a good balance of different things within that. So you have a ton of things going on and we've covered a huge span. You know, you have a blog, you're on Twitter, you have your own portfolio, you have the Ladybug Ladybug podcast. I'm really struggling saying Ladybug out loud. It's <laughs> the first time I've ever noticed that. Um, can you tell some of the listeners where they can find you if they love this conversation? If they're not part of your huge fan base yet, where should they find you? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm a spittle pretty much everywhere on the internet, so you can find me there. I think my YouTube is Ali Spittle Dev because I took a spittle accidentally with my like personal YouTube. So other than that, that's where I am. WeLearnCode.com is my blog, so that's kind of the primary thing. But 
Twitter, YouTube, all the things. Try to try to. And be it'll be in all the show notes, so people will be able to click on the link easily. But it's always nice to hear people say it out loud too. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much. Allie, this was amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and uh, go check out Allie's stuff. Listen to her podcast. Uh, check out Amplify because it's an amazing product. Um, yeah. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Such a treat to spend this morning with you. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having me. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Ali Spittle for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, Lumigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 111. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odelay and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.